You're listening to First Church Charlotte. All right. Praise the Lord, somebody. So I'm preaching from this subject today, God's ways, God's ways. Now, we have a saying, and we'll read some scriptures as we go. We won't stand for a formal reading. I'll just have you follow along with me as we go. I have something I want to convey to you, uh, something about about the nature of God and something about what it means to uh, be a person of faith. And when we, when we say in our lives that we are going to, we're going to serve the Lord, we're going, to, we're going to cultivate our faith and turn our heart toward God. That's really what we do. He draws us, and we make a decision on whether or not we will respond to that drawing in our life. I want to say I'm thankful for every one of you here today who has responded to the drawing power of the cross in your life to woo you toward the kingdom of heaven. Now, when that happens to you, you have a choice. Uh, all of you, whatever your background is, whatever your upbringing is, when you feel the drawing of God on your life, you have a choice at that moment, what are you going to do with that? And almost every Sunday there is drawing here. And as a minister and as a believer and as a longtime uh, believer and church member, um, I oftentimes can feel that drawing in the service. I, I don't always know who it is directed to. Occasionally I do. But it's very, very common for there to be a drawing in the service, something where God touches you. He knocks on your heart door, as we church people like to say, and you decide what you're going to do with that. I believe right now today the Lord will draw some of us, some of us drawn towards something. It's not always salvational. Uh, That is a place of beginnings. Um, A lot of times as Christians we make salvation the whole story. When it's the kingdom of heaven, that's the whole story. The salvation part is an introduction through the grace of God. Can I have a big amen, somebody? The salvation piece of it is the introduction into the kingdom of God by His mercy. He has removed that which divided us from him. The veil of the temple has been torn. There is now no more spiritual separation. We are able to enter into his holy place. Why? Because he has imputed to us his holiness. And so we, we have this, this, this reality and, and that first salvation moment stands as an introduction to the kingdom of heaven. But at that moment, you're not done. If, if, if that's what you think the kingdom of God consists of, you've misunderstood the kingdom of God. There is something at stake. And all of you who have received this gift of God, salvation, bab- uh, repentance of sins, spiritual adoption, taking on his name in baptism, and spiritual empowerment, being a spirit-filled believer, and having the testimony, the personal testimony of that, you have been invited into a certain type of work, a certain type of effort that is eternal. It is the kingdom of God here at on earth. What is at stake is the larger story, the fallen human story, those people who have turned in rebellion against God and the, Lord, the Spirit of the Lord is drawing them and wooing them. How does he do that? He does that with the most beautiful beautiful story ever told. That is the story of the gospel. That is the drawing. He does that with the sign of his love. That is Calvary. And through testimony, he does that through meeting their needs in the moment of their pain, in the moment of their hurt and isolation. These become spiritual testimonies and signs in their life that God loves them. This becomes the bread that is cast upon the water, the love of God. It is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. 
And so when Jesus stands on the day of Pentecost and he, he, he reads the prophecy, not on the day of Pentecost, forgive me, the commencement of his ministry, he stands there, uh, he will read a list of things and uh, the gospel will be mentioned twice, preaching the gospel, the good news, the hope of our salvation will be mentioned twice, healing will be mentioned twice, and deliverance will be mentioned twice. These three things, proclamation of, go- of the gospel hope, deliverance from the bondage of sin, and healing from both physical and spiritual oppression. This is the work of God manifest here in the earth. Now, Jesus is still in the business of giving hope to people who are imprisoned, Hope to people who are broken. He's still in the business of delivering the spiritually oppressed. And he's still in the business of healing broken things. I wonder if there are anybody in the house today who is a living testimony that God is a deliverer and that God is a healer. I want to say it loud and clear. He is my deliverer and he is my healer. So I want to say to everyone, if you are bound in sin, you can leave delivered in Jesus' name. And so God works in our life, and God manifests himself uh, through the circumstances of our life. And uh, we often quote one to another the great passage in Isaiah 55, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. So I want you to see something that God is working, but you often will not know how, when, or even why. Sometimes the why is the easiest of those, to see how God is working in your life. But I want to deeply convince you today of this truth. God is working in your life. It may not be easy to understand, but he is working, and he is in the business of repurposing the fragments of your life into something that demonstrates his goodness. He demonstrates his character as though he shows what he can do with the broken fragments of your life. He, he does things differently than we do them. He fixes things differently than we fix them. Uh, but nonetheless, he does ever so much better in the fixing of them. Paul will write to the New Testament church and say, now when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law. Now I want to use the Christmas story as a uh, example to a larger story and I want to convince you by telling you this story of some things that are true about your life. Some things that God is doing in your life. So let's agree on this. God's ways are above our ways. God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. My favorite story to illustrate this or my favorite little joke to illustrate this is the man um, who goes to the Lord and he says, Lord, uh, I've heard that a day with you is like a thousand years. And the Lord said, that's correct. He said, well, uh, what would a million dollars be to you? And the Lord said, oh, about like a penny. And the man got all excited and he said, wow, could I have a penny, Lord? The Lord said, sure, tomorrow. Uh, God does things on a different scale than we do. 
And God uses different materials than we do. If I want to dig a ditch, I'll start with a shovel. And if I get really organized and really official, I'll get some heavy equipment. And I'll get an excavator. I'll do as much as I can do with a shovel. And then, now organized and capitalized, I will get a steam shovel and I will dig more. And at the end of the day, uh, I've worked in my abilities. I've worked with my organization and I've dug a pretty good ditch Uh, you know, across some property. And that's the story of what I can do. God does not use shovels to dig ditches. God does not use excavators. Why? His ways are higher than my ways. The Lord will take a raindrop over North Central America and he will join it with some other raindrops and say, hmm, what can I do with some raindrops? Let's put it into some streams and then he'll join some streams into a river and then he'll send a river this way and that way. And then time really doesn't mean the same thing to him that it does to us. So he is content to see what raindrops joined together can do. And when God is done, what started as some raindrops over the plains has turned into a Grand Canyon, 277 miles long, 18 miles wide at point, and over almost um, over 6,000 feet deep. And this is not even the deepest ditch that the Lord has ever decided to dig. There's a canyon in Tibet that is over 17,000 feet deep, which is three times deeper than the Grand Canyon. You see, God does things differently than you do it, differently than I do it, but I want you to know God is working in your life. The very circumstance you are frustrated with, God's at work. The very brokenness that you think signifies the end of your opportunity is the very things God will convert into spiritual artwork of testimony. God loves to use broken things. In fact, the more broken you are, the more interested God is in taking the pieces of your life and making a testimony for his kingdom. I want to convince you, in spite of the embarrassment, God's working in your life. Say it with me. Somebody say, God's working in my life. Say it again. God's working in my life. Put your hands together and give the Lord a hand clap of praise right now. I want to convince you that God is working in your life and you are unimpressed with the materials of your life. You are unimpressed with the abilities of your life. But God is using everything in your life. He repurposes things for you. Even the sorrow that you have endured, even the pain that you have endured, even the isolation that you have endured. The Lord will repurpose it. He is the great teacher who speaks to his followers and says, gather up the fragments that remain, not the leftovers. That's different. Leftovers is extras. Fragments is the discarded. Gather up the fragments that remain because I will make something of them. He is the good shepherd who doesn't stop seeking for the lost sheep, although the wolves have found it first. He is the good shepherd that does not stop caring and loving, even though the wolves have ripped the sheep apart. And the only thing left is a couple of ribs and a piece of an ear. I'm referring to an Old Testament image. Um, And the shepherd gathers those. No other shepherd has any hope for what is left, but this good shepherd can make 
whole, even with the fragments that remain in your life. You say, it's a mess. Okay, I'm with you. I understand messes. Uh, I have little children. I'm good with messes. I've seen messes that would make the devil wince. But I want to tell you this. God will take a mess and he will repurpose the broken pieces into something that is a testimony uh, of his goodness. This is what I know the blind man says. I once was blind, but now I see. God uses blindness to testify to vision. Think, and again, I want to show you this in the Christmas story. Christ was born. He is the hope of all who looked forward for redemption. He is the hope of the promise made to the fathers. He is the one of whom Isaiah wrote, the one of whom David sang. He is altogether good and beautiful, although he chose no beauty to manifest. The beauty of God is not something pleasing uh, to the eyes of the flesh. It is something necessary to the reality of the heart. And yet he was born. And it was no accident. Paul said in the fullness of time Christ was born. Uh, There was uh, in the house of Israel there was great, great sorrow. The greatest sorrow that came upon them after they they had failed to obey the commandments of the Lord. And like all of us they went astray. What they did is they took God's commandments and they repurposed God's commandments to serve themselves. And the Lord would send prophets to them to point out that they had chose a form of godliness, but they had missed the justice and mercy that undergird true holiness. You had taken a form of of godliness, and you had used that to signify the heart of God, and you've ignored justice and mercy, which actually is that essence and nature of God you should have manifest. And so you have created your own godliness, and I'm sick of it, God says. So he sends a prophet to point out they had a form of godliness, but their heart did not resonate to the heart of God. Don't have time to preach that, but that's some fine preaching. Thank you very much. I love you too. And so uh, the prophet comes, and what do they do with the prophets? Well, Uh, Religious people don't take correction very well, and religious people tend to kill those who would correct them. Uh, Nowadays, we just do it with our mouths, but back then, they did it with stones, and so the prophets come, and they killed those prophets. Y'all should pray for prophets. Prophets have a hard life. I don't want to be a prophet. Uh, I want to be a celebrity televangelist with a jet. That's what I want to be, and I want a black Visa card, and if I could just get, anyway, moving along. Um, uh, Prophets have a tough life, and so the people of God kill the prophets because they don't like the fact that their form of godliness, their form of honoring God is actually not the point of the nature, essence, character, heart of God. They've missed it. They've made it about something else. So they kill the prophets because what they want to do is they want God to serve them. They don't want to serve God. And so Christ is born and they reject him. Now, they have suffered much. There's no lack of suffering in their story. Uh, the, great, the great destruction of the house of Israel, uh, the great oppression of the Babylonian Empire, uh, they lost their temple, they lost their holy city, they lost their nation all in Judah. You can read about it in Jeremiah and Second Chronicles. Uh, they lose all of these things and they are broken. And you can read some of their mournful lamentations from this time. By the rivers of Babylon, they write, we wept, we sat there, we wept. They asked us to sing 
a song, uh, but we couldn't do it. How can we do it? Uh, Jerusalem has been destroyed. We've been isolated. We've been separated. Uh, We can't worship here. Um, And out of that sorrow comes three great things. I don't want to take a lot of time on them. I just want to give them to you very quickly. The first great thing that came out of that Babylonian captivity was uh, monotheism. The house of Israel will never again be tempted to worship gods of stone or wood of gold. It is in the Babylonian captivity that they really stabilize upon the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. One Out of that Babylonian captivity comes the, 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 the Bible. Ezra gathers the Holy Scripture as a part of that first great synagogue and it's gathered together and they begin to teach. The third thing that comes out of this is this culture of gathering for worship and teaching the word of the Lord. Three things happen in sorrow that had never happened in blessing, had never happened in their walled city, in their beautiful temple. And that is monotheism as a settled belief structure. Uh, Secondly, uh, the Bible and the tradition of gathering and honoring the word of God. And thirdly, uh, the birth of the synagogue where we come together to worship and to learn. The church is built on these three things. The church is built even today on monotheism, the true church. It is built upon, um, uh, upon the Bible and it is built upon coming together. We do it differently now. We come together in more of a resurrection of the tabernacle of David. Again, this is Old Testament imagery. If you're not familiar with this, just uh, I'll move along quickly. But I want you to see God uses tragedies to bring about victories. And every one of you, you look at your life and it's easy to identify tragedies. You look at your life and it's easy to identify sorrows. I'm here to tell you God is using those sorrows to bring about something that hell never saw coming. God is using that to bring about something that the flesh cannot perceive. But when God is done, it is going to be for his glory. So I've come to tell all of you this. I want you to get this. God is working in your life. You are not isolated. You are not forgotten. You are not abandoned in the here and in the now. God is working in your life. This is the mistake we make. We look for good things and say, oh, the Lord is working. I'm here to tell you, look at everything. God is working. The second thing I want to convey to you that to show you how God's ways are above our ways. The first one I've talked about, God's working. We can't perceive it, but God is working. It's like standing over an ocean of mystery and standing and riding in a ship or riding in a boat uh, day after day after day. The whole sea is filled with mysteries, but all you can see is seagulls. You can stay, walk outside the church and lift your eyes heavenward and all you'll see is a blue sky and a sun too bright to look into but beyond the blue sky that you cannot see because the sun has flooded your, your, your sky with too many lumens. The, the, the heavens are filled with wonders. They're still there even when you cannot see them. They don't just come out at night. It's just the nighttime when you can see them. So it is with God in our life. He is working even when we cannot perceive him. 
That's the first way that his ways are above our ways. The second thing is this. God will prepare you for what is coming next. You are not abandoned to a call you cannot perceive and you cannot accomplish. God has prepared the way for you to walk in. I believe you are God's plan to make a difference in your world. I believe you can be the one to pray for someone and testify of the healing power of God. I believe you can be the one to see a financial miracle in your life. I knew that would get you excited. You can be the one to be set free from those things that have been a curse over you year after year after year and you're tired of hurting with it and you're tired of being insecure and you're tired of being fearful. God can set you free. God will prepare you for what comes next. I want to show you in this story of the birth of Christ, Alexander the Great in the fourth century before Christ, this would be about 350 BC, he began his conquest of the civilized world and in a very short period of time, the entire civilized world became Greek. Greek institutions, Greek culture, Greek philosophy, Greek architecture, Greek thought, Greek poetry, Greek drama, Greek literature, Greek language. In fact, Greek language became the universal cultural language of the Greco-Roman empire. When Alexander the Great died, his four chief generals divided the, the world up into four parts. And uh, they carried on Greek culture, Greek institutions, Greek language to the entire world. In 280 BC in uh, Alexandria, uh, they translate the Hebrew Bible, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint. They They translate that for the first time into the Greek. Now, this is the Bible the church is going to have access to. This is the Bible that when the gospel preachers travel and preach, they're going to refer to the Hebrew Bible in the Greek. The whole world is poised and ready for what God is doing. I'm here to tell you, God will prepare you for what he is going to do. And so wherever the Christian preacher goes in the world, he takes the Greek Septuagint, the Greek Bible. It's the Hebrew Bible in the Greek language and preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ out of that. More, Paul will write his letters to churches all over the empire and he will do so in Greek. And wherever the letters land, they can read it because the Greek language has become the language of empire and the language of government and the language of culture all across the world for the first time in human history. It was no accident that Christ was born when he was. It was the fullness of time. God had set the stage. God had prepared the table. That's what God is doing in your life. Don't let confusion be the end of what you think God is doing. God is setting the table before you even in the presence of your enemies. Don't let fear be the end of the feelings you have. God is preparing you. Paul writes to the churches all across Asia Minor. He does so in Greek. John writes the seven letters to the churches of Asia in Revelation chapter number two. He does it in Greek. One church is on this side of the empire. The other church is on that side of the empire. Uh, Alexander the Great did not know that part of his stunning success was because God needed a world that could communicate a gospel. Alexander the Great did not know that in all his efforts, out of that was coming 
becoming a spiritual repurposing, a spiritual reconstruction of everything he thought he was doing for his own reasons. God took the pieces of this reality, this world, this war, and he created something that became the fullness of time. God is preparing you right now for what is next in your life. That's the second thing I want you to do. The first one is God's working in your life. Second one is God is preparing you for what comes next. And the third one is this, and I know we say this a lot, but I want to convince you of it. God will make a way. He's working even when you cannot see him. He has prepared you for what comes next, and he will make a way where there seems only impossibility. God will make a way where it seems absurd. I want to use the Christmas story to convince you of just how God can do this. There's a small town on the peninsula of southern Europe, peninsula shaped like a boot. It's not known as Italy then, but we know it as Italy now. And there's this city there, and the city's called Roma. And this city is known for tough-minded individuals, but somehow, in the development of their culture, they somehow got super, super uh, interested in organization. They became the first truly... um, how shall we say, the true uh, advantage of innovation started right here, and they were highly, highly organized. Uh, They didn't invent technology so much that had ever been invented. Uh, They organized the structures of their civilization and military in a way that it had never been organized. And so these uh, tough-minded people with stunning organizational abilities naturally create an army of the first class, and they begin to conquer the city-states around them. They're not the biggest. They fight many armies that the, are, their opposites have more soldiers than them. They fight many empires that have more ships, more chariots, more soldiers than them. But being highly organized, uh, they just so happen to have a knack for winning. Why? This is why you should go home and organize your desk. Because organization wins battles. I'm going to move along. I don't want to put pressure. Uh, so I want you to see how uh, this, this small city-state rises to prominence. They cross the sea. They spread the kingdom, or the empire, I should say. They are in Europe. They're in Africa. They're in the Near East. They mold the greatest empire the world has then seen. And then they use that empire to civilize a world that has never been civilized. Now there is no war between empires. There's only skirmish and rebellions. And so for the first time, there is a peace that is enabling the spread of the gospel. Further, they lace this empire with roads. And for the first time in human history, you're able to travel on roads from one city to another. And finally, they institute for the first time in history a postal system where a preacher who's locked up over here can be worrying about Christians who live over there and so the preacher locked up over here can write a letter to his friends uh, that live over here and he can put that letter in the mail and it will get to these people over here the Roman Empire had no sense of doing anything for God but God didn't mind God will make a way where there seems to be no way 
Alexander the Great had no intention to do anything for God, but God didn't mind. God will make a way where there seems to be no way. Even when they're laughing at you, God's getting interested. Even when they say it's impossible, God's starting to perk up because God's at his best once the enemy has said it is not possible. Imagine a critic making fun of Hebrew prophecy. They would say, what's the deal with this with this prophet this prophecy business doesn't make any sense one prophet says this messiah is going to be from uh, uh, nazareth and another prophecy says he's going to be born in bethlehem now this makes no sense the critic says uh, are you from nazareth or are you from bethlehem it makes no sense uh, i just I, I you know wherever you're born that's where you're from and so this is absurd god can't get out of this mess and so uh, Caesar Augustus decides to take a census of his empire. And he says, look, we're going to take a census because, you know, taxes, government taxes, money. Yeah. And we're going to do this. And he has no intention to help God. He doesn't even believe in the Hebrew God. He has no desire whatsoever to help any covenant made with Abraham. He doesn't know who Abraham is. But God doesn't mind that Caesar Augustus has no desire to help. God is going to do what God is going to do even when the critics say it's impossible and even when the enemy says it's absurd. And so down in a little village of Nazareth, a a young man by the name of Joseph says to his heavily pregnant woman, uh, who can deal with taxes and government? They're going to kill us. And she says, I'm not getting on a donkey and I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to tell you right now. And he said, honey, I'm sorry. I can't deal with the government. Uh, and the angel said, ta-da-da-da, ta-da-da-da. And she said, if you put me on an donkey, I'm going to kill you. And he said, I can't help it. It's taxes. We have to pay. And so she got up on that Texas, uh, that, 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 not taxes. And uh, she got up on the, like I said, she got up on that donkey. And she looks at, she cuts her eyes. There's no woman in the history of the world pregnant ever got on a donkey was happy about it. Never happened ever. She did not get on that donkey like, praise the Lord. I'm so glad to be here. She got up on that donkey and she cut her eyes at that husband. And she said, I'd like to tell Caesar Augustus what I think of his dirty self. Hauling me out through the neighborhood. I'm big as a house. Every time, you know what? Joseph won't even look at her. Joseph won't even look at her. He's like walking like this: Jesus, 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 save us, Lord Jesus. And she's got; she could kill with them eyes. Eight and a half months pregnant on the back of a donkey. Caesar Augustus has no desire to help the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God doesn't care. God's going to do what God's going to do. And so, though you mock the prophets, and though you laugh at prophecy, this is how God turns the fates of humankind. And you have a man, a, a Messiah from Nazareth, who happens to be born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem's not in Nazareth. God's going to do three things. Number one, God's working in your life. You can't always see him, but he's working. I refuse the lies of the devil. I'm sick of you believing your fears and your doubts. I'm sick of me believing my fears and my doubt. Somebody say, God is working. 
God's working in this church. The enemy would like to stop it, but God's working in this church. God's working in this city. The enemy would like to stop it, but God is working in this city. God's working in your life. The enemy would like to stop it, but God is working in your life. That's number one. Number two, God is preparing you for what he's going to do. He's already decided to do it. The devil can't stop it. The IRS can't stop it. Caesar Augustus can't stop it. The president can't stop it. Uh, God's going to do it. I can't even stop it. I just choose whether or not I want to be a part of it. God's going to do it. He's preparing the church for what he's going to do. Number three, it doesn't matter if it looks impossible. God's able to do it. It doesn't matter if it sounds crazy. God's able to do it. God will kick an empire out of his nighttime bed and say, you ought to collect some taxes. God will put a pregnant woman on a donkey and a sad husband walking through in front of the donkey and when he's done Mm. I'm going to have to give myself more amens that's all I got to say about that musicians come when God is done when God is done he will have moved everything in your life to bring about what he has ordained for you. Refuse doubt, my brother. Refuse doubt, my sister. God will finish what he has started in you. This is why you should be a worshiper. Worship doesn't require you to know how it's going to happen. Worship is simply what's going to happen. (laughs) I praise God because you are able to do exceedingly abundantly above all I can ask or think. That's why you ought to be a worshiper. That's why you ought to speak confidence and faith over the troubles in your life. Why? Because God's going to do what he's going to do. And he will make the powers that be move like puppets to bring about what he's going to do. God will make the impossibilities twist like children playing a game of twister until he brings about what he's going to do and this is what I know one of these days the trumpet's going to sound and the dead who are in Christ are going to be caught up to meet him in the air and we who are alive and remain hopefully you're alive because if you're walking dead there's going to be no vampires up there just so you know no mummies no zombies are going to heaven I've been to some churches filled with zombies hallelujah praise the Lord but I'm telling you no it's going to be those who are I'm sorry I'm in a mood it's the holidays I want you to see it seems crazy yes it seems impossible yes somebody say yes Yes. thank you yes God doesn't care God's going to do what do you need him to manifest in your life he's going to do it would you stand with me all across this house Lord Jesus I'm praying for every individual here I'm praying for every believer I'm praying for every member of this church I'm praying for every uh, guest who's here today we want to be drawn close to you Lord Jesus we want to be included in your presence we want to be in some way uh, living evangels of faith knowing you're working on our behalf and you are bringing to fruition everything that you have ordained according to your will in Jesus name we pray In Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. I want to pray against fear and doubt. If you've been attacked in fear and doubt recently, I want you to step out of the chair you're in right now. I want you to come stand across the front. I want to pray over you. I want you to be honest about it. I know there's some vulnerability in doing this. I I, I admit that. Um, I I sometimes uh, have struggled with fear and doubt, and then I don't want to admit it. 
I don't want to admit it because it makes me seem like I'm not doing very good. But I'm, I'm preaching to some people here today and I'm giving you an opportunity to have a moment of confession down here. Our pastoral team is going to come and, and begin to help me uh, in this altar. But I, I want anyone who, uh, I, 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 I want you to be honest, okay? Okay, okay. The first step of spiritual warfare is to identify what you're fighting. Identify what you're fighting. When you do that, it gives you a sense of confidence to speak with authority against what you're fighting. And so we don't know how God is working always. And we don't know how he's manifesting himself in our life. But what we know is that whatever the details involved, God's on our side. Okay, we know that. And what we know is we oftentimes can identify what we're feeling more than we can solve it. (laughs) I don't even know that to be the case. I can tell you when I'm mad. I just can't tell you how to fix it. I can tell you when I'm sad. I just can't tell you how to fix it. I can tell you when I'm down. I just can't always lift myself up. So this is what I want us to do. Uh, I'd like those of you, if you're near someone and it's appropriate, I'd like you to join with them. The Bible teaches us this. So you can take hands with someone near you. You can put a hand on their shoulder, whatever's, whatever's fine. Uh, I want, I want, our, I want our, our pastors to, to, to begin to just feel free to move through, these, move through these people standing right here. I'm going to move through as we begin to pray. Our, our worship team's going to lead us in worship. And we're going to turn this whole house here for a moment into a place of intercession. Those of you who are in your seats, I'd like you to extend a hand down toward the front and I'd like you to speak faith over these people. Could you do that right now? I'd like you to speak faith over them right now. In Jesus' name, by your mighty power, by your mighty spirit. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If this podcast has blessed you, please rate it with four or five stars. By doing so, you will help others find our free podcast and bless them. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come worship with us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road. For information about service times, church ministries, and so much more, visit us online at firstchurchclt.com. If you would like to help support our efforts, please text GIVE to 704-445-5353. We pray God's richest blessings to you. Come worship with us.